When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters. Presented by Syracuse.com. College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen. Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by former Syracuse basketball player Arenze Anawaku. I talked with Arenze about his Syracuse career, the people who told him he would never play at Syracuse, the six-overtime game against UConn, and the knee injury that ended his senior season. Well, welcome back to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. And today's guest is a guy who uh, Syracuse fans are going to remember fondly uh, for his days uh, anchoring the middle of that Syracuse 2-3 zone. Uh, It's Arenze Anawaku. Ayo, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, you know, I wanted to have you on the pod for a while. You're on my list of, of, you know, guys to get on here. But then recently you and I were talking and I've been hearing like you're, you're, you're venturing into the broadcasting uh, area, which made me want to get you on the podcast even more. Um, tell me a little bit about this. You know, what's gotten you in, into interested in broadcasting and, and what are you going to be doing? Well, you know, my time at Syracuse, I did some broadcasting when I was up there. Um, I did sport management with a minor in broadcasting. So I was in the Newhouse School um, for about a little bit of my time up there. And I, I did some internships with um, Matt Park, as well as uh, Mike Bristol while I was in Syracuse. So now that my playing career has come to a halt, I'm getting back into it. Uh, how long have you uh, been out of the game as a player, as it when, when did you hang up the sneakers? Well, I didn't officially hang them up, but COVID kind of changed the, the makeup of basketball. Most people don't understand, like when you go overseas, a team might have like 50% of your contract. The rest of your contract comes from sponsorships and from fans. And, you know, when COVID hit, obviously the sponsorships were taken away and the fans were taken away. So you had to make a decision whether you wanted to go overseas and play for pretty much half your salary or you wanted to transition. And I felt like I was at the time where it was time for me to transition. Yeah. Cause uh, you've been out of school now, 10, 11 years. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, I can't believe I'm saying it's been that long. Is it even as the words come out of my mouth, it seems like it was just yesterday that, that I was covering your teams, but yeah, 10 years as a pro is a long time. 
Yeah, time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> Were you always having fun playing pro ball? I mean, uh, every you you played everywhere from the G League to the NBA to Lithuania, uh, China, right? Yes, I Is mean it it's a rom- fun? roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. I mean, some situations you get into, you're very happy and very satisfied, and other situations you're like you're miserable. Um, I think that when you bring up the G League, I think the G League is the only league in the world where nobody wants to be there. Everybody's there to get somewhere else, whether it's the coaches, the trainers, the players. So you have to approach it like pretty much I'm here for a short period of time to get to the next level. And, you know, the NBA is big on the G League and uh, where you can broadcast yourself and play. There's scouts in the gym every single night. They're calling the coaches, constantly trying to figure out, is he working hard? Is he getting better at this? Is he getting better at that? So that was my time to, to show that I was an NBA player. You know what I always thought was remarkable about, about your pro career was, you know, your Syracuse career ends in 2010. And it's not until four years later that you make your NBA debut. Now, a lot of guys, if they don't make get to the NBA some, you know, in the first year or two, that's pretty much it. They're off to Europe and they're never going to make the NBA. But what was it that made you want to stick to that NBA dream or, or how did you get there? Because after getting into the NBA, you, you had a couple games over like each of the next three years, 2014, 15 and 16, or if I'm right. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the story of my life. Like, I was the guy that was not supposed to make it or the guy that wasn't chosen. You know, even when I signed in Syracuse, people were like, why are you going there? You're never going to play. And that's the same thing with my NBA dream. Like, I I knew that I was good enough. I mean, many didn't know that. But the work that I put in, I knew that I I could make it, especially coming from Maryland, D.C. area, where we have so many pros here. I'm playing against these guys on a regular basis, and I see that I'm there with these guys. So I know that I'm able to play at the NBA level. So just putting my time and continuing to work, trying to set myself up for a good situation. And then when I got to New Orleans, I went there for just for a regular tryout. You know, they have like three day mini camps mm-hmm. and I went to the mini the mini camp for three days. I played with the players that were on the team, you know, Austin Rivers, Anthony Davis, just to name a few. And the coach called my agent like the third day and was like, we don't want him to leave. We need him to stay. So that's where that started as far as the New Orleans Pelican situation. That, that really is amazing. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you end up playing with Minnesota, you played with Orlando and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, rem- just the fortitude, the stick to uh, you know, to, to hang in there. You, know, you said um, when you signed with Syracuse coming out of high school, that some folks told you don't go there. Uh, you'll never play. You know, what other schools did you consider in, in addition to Syracuse? What were your other opportunities? I narrowed it down to Maryland, Pittsburgh, Boston College, Georgia and Syracuse. I think that was my top five. Well, those other schools are all great schools too. I don't know why anybody was telling you you weren't going to play at Syracuse. You know how it is. Like when you're coming from this area, they see so many Kevin Durant, Mike Beasley, these guys that are McDonald's All-Americans, you know, cream of the crop. And then you have a guy like me that they don't know if I'm good enough to play at that level. So they just say, oh, he just got the scholarship because he's 6'9". So why would you go there? Why don't you go to a mid-major? And, um, you know, I was on my journey to prove him wrong. And you did. I mean, for a guy who was never going to play your freshman year, you didn't start. You know, I think Mookie Watkins was here. Yeah. But you, you played in 29 games. I went back. I looked that up. I don't know that off the top of my head. I had to look that up. But you played in 29 games as a freshman. Yeah. I mean, 
it was definitely a learning curve for me. I mean, when I first got to Syracuse, I think Terrence and Mookie blocked my shot uh, probably six times of practice every day. So uh, <laughs> it was definitely a big stepping stone. But like I said, with everything in my career, I just continued to work, stay after practice, come early to practice, work on the nuances of the game just to help me grow as a player. So I just continued to work. You know, it was after that freshman year and you showed a lot of promise that year. It's the following year that you, you, you suffered that the, your first knee injury. Mm-hmm. and you had to have surgery and you're going to miss your entire second year. How, how difficult was that for you to, to go through? And, um, you know, obviously it's going to be the first of a lot of knee, knee troubles you're going to have after that. Um, but, but what was that injury? What exactly was that injury and, and, and how hard was it for you to go through it? An injury, I had a partial tear in my quads and my knee was bothering me on a regular basis and it just didn't feel right. So I had to go see the doctor and they told me that I had a partial tear and I needed surgery. So I knew that I would miss my sophomore year, but it was tough for me because it's my first time ever having surgery, first time ever missing the basketball season. And obviously I'm at Syracuse and I'm people are looking to see like, what, is, what am I gonna pan out to be at Syracuse? But I think the biggest thing that I learned that year was I learned the game without playing the game if that makes sense. I was able to sit close to Coach Hop pretty much every game, and we really broke down the game each and every game to help me in the long run. Like he told me what Mookie or Terrence was doing right, what they were doing wrong during the game, and I know that coming into the season next year, I'll be able to add that to my game. You know, in a weird way, there, there, there is a silver lining here to that injury you're sitting out that second year. Instead of backing up, Mookie again, mm-hmm. you sit out, you redshirt, and now you come back and as a redshirt sophomore, you're now the starter and, and you become a three-year starter at center. I mean, is, is that a silver lining or, or am I trying too hard to, to, to make, a, make a bad situation good? No, it made a lot of sense. I mean, and then that, the guys that I was playing with, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that year was, I think I was started with four All-Americans, if I'm not mistaken. That, that year I came back as, as a redshirt sophomore. So well, that would have been the Johnny Flynn, Dante Green, the, the, in, that Flynn. incoming freshman class, Paul Harris. Paul, so it was Paul, Johnny, Dante, and Eric. So all four <laughs> McDonald's All-Americans and then me. <laughs> so, um, and then working out. The guy who was never going to play. <laughs> right. The guy who was never going to play is on the floor starting with four All-Americans at Syracuse University. What a story, right? Yeah. Now, you mentioned, Eric, that season kind of got a little sideways on that year's team when Eric went down with a mm-hmm. knee injury. I mean, and then at that point, Andy Routens was already gone for the year. Mm-hmm. So without er- Andy and Eric, man, it was you and a bunch of young kids that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that like? All of a sudden, uh, was that like your first time in the role of a, of a veteran leader? Yeah, I grew up a lot that year. Um, I was kind of handed – the leadership spot by mistake. Um, you know, Eric was our leader, but obviously he went down. And, you know, Eric was my roommate all four years. So to see him have that knee injury, I just I just knew how tough it was for him because he's such a competitor and he wants to be out there every night. But I think, like I said, I think I learned so much that year. I grew so much that year. You know, having four McDonald's All-Americans potentially on the floor, um, being a leader, and then everybody knows in the 2-3 zone, the center is the anchor. So I'm the one talking, I'm the one leading. 
And I think that that year was a year that I kind of like found myself and knew that I could play at this level. When you said that you and Eric lived together for four years, you, you guys were roommates. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what that was like, because I'm trying to think of two people that at least um, from the outside looking in, it couldn't be more different. What was it like rooming with Eric Dievendorf? Actually, we're almost like the same people, which is funny. Uh, he's a gym rat. I'm the gym rat. He's a okay. sports junkie. I'm a sports junkie. I mean, we talk the game all day. We get along. We we pretty much like the same types of food. It, it, it was like it was like we knew each other before we got there. All right. So I've seen and heard him talk trash on the court. Mm-hmm. What was was there any trash talk in, in you know, off the court video no. games? Other what, <laughs> come on. What was Eric like? He's like that on the floor. Like, you know, it's like an on and off switch when he gets on the floor. Um, I wasn't a big trash talker on the floor, but him, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. And what's funny is like when I was out that sophomore year, watching him step up to like Cal Lowry and those big time guys and scores a bucket and he's talking to them that showed that he has no fear and he really trusts his game. So it was something to watch. You never jumped on a scorer's table though. No. <laughs> It would have been bad news for the scores table. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the next year, Eric gets back. Andy's back. By then, you know, Dante's gone. You know, Paul's back. Mm -hmm. But um, you get that 2019. And you're going to have you know, just an amazing uh, game at the end of that year, the six overtime game against Connecticut. we got to go into this. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you remember most about that six overtime game? I just remember it felt like it was never going to end. I feel like every time you looked up at the scoreboard, it was tied. And I think I fouled out, if I'm not mistaken, in the second overtime. And I just found myself just watching the game, watching the game. And then you look up, this horn sounds, it's tied again. You look up the horn sounds, it's tied, it's tied again. And you can see like the guys are just getting tired and looking drained from the, you know, cause I think Paul, Johnny, I think they played the entire game. And I think the thing I remember the most is Chris Joseph checked in to play center because we didn't have any more bodies. Cause you had fouled out and Rick, Rick Jackson had fouled out too. Uh-huh. So he comes to me and asks me, he said, what do I do down there? I said, just keep your hands up. That's all you need to do. Because <laughs> it was too much. To, I couldn't teach a whole, in, in a whole 30-second timeout, I couldn't teach him what to do. But I just told him, just go out there and stand up with your hands up and keep your hands wide and move. That's all I told him. And before you know it, you look at the zone, Chris Joseph, Chris Joseph at center, uh, JT is playing the two guard. And these are guys that, yeah, walk played. on Justin Thomas. Yeah, walked on. He walked on, and then Chris Joseph obviously never played the center spot. So it was just, it was just like, wow, we're still playing. And look at the lineup now. I remember when Chris Joseph went in, and he's a six foot seven small forward. He goes in at center, and I think Hashim Tabit was still in the game. No, he was out. Oh, oh, that spared Chris that one. I think he was fouled out by then. Yeah. Okay. Good thing. But he was still going up against all those Connecticut bigs. Uh-huh, for sure. 
uh, for, did, did you ever feel guilty about just sitting there watching, uh, you know, all those overtimes and all those guys are having like Johnny Flynn's out there playing 67 out of 70 minutes? <laughs> I don't know if I would have lasted. I, <laughs> I definitely would have called for a breather a few times. I mean, those guys, they never came out the game. It, it was amazing to see. I mean, it's just a testament to what type of shape they were in. But wow, like to be able to play that many minutes in an atmosphere like that, with your adrenaline going, the crowd wearing a guard, and it was just like, it was an amazing night. What was it like for you guys after it was over, both maybe in the locker room, but like also like when you guys finally get back to the team hotel, what did y'all do? I mean, it was like you wanted to celebrate, but you didn't have the energy to celebrate like, I feel like the guys that played all the minutes were just physically tired. But even us that fouled out early, we were mentally tired because every time I were trying to coach the guys on the floor, what to do, what not to do, you know, coaches trying to get us together. I mean, the guys are playing their hearts out. It was just like, we want to celebrate, but we just don't have the energy to celebrate. And we had another game the next day. Same day, actually. Yeah, same day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was against West Virginia and it the semifinals and it went overtime. Another overtime. <laughs> the team that Another played six overtimes the night before won in overtime against West Virginia, which I, some people don't remember that or don't, don't remember it right off. I thought that was just incredible that you guys were able to somehow come back and, and win in overtime against a very well-rested West Virginia team. Yeah, I mean – I, I think that's why we crashed pretty much after the first. What was the the next game was Louisville, right? Louisville. And I think that's why we crashed after that first half. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, because Louisville pressed, and we we were on our last bit of energy. You know, playing night to night to night overtimes back to back. We were on our last bit of energy. But the thing about it is, like, this when you see like the greatness in coach because. Coach wasn't even mad that we lost to Louisville because he knew that we gave all our all the last, the first three nights before that. So we, you can see his demeanor was different. Like when we lose, you get a certain type of coach. But when we lost to Louisville, his demeanor was totally different. Well, he also usually in the whenever they get knocked, whenever Syracuse gets knocked out of Big East tournament, he immediately goes into prepare for the NCAA tournament mode. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he was like immediately making sure you guys were we're going to start focusing uh, on the, on the tournament in the following week. Right. And by the way, I don't know if you remember in the second round of that NCAA tournament, you guys beat Arizona state with a guy named James Harden on the roster. Yeah. I remember that. You do. In my, in <laughs> Y'all shut him down in Miami. Yeah. That's that, right. zone, that zone gave him a lot of trouble. I, I tell everybody that's like the, I think that's the NCAA the March Madness kryptonite is that 2-3 zone because if you haven't seen it during the regular season, there's no scout team that can look like our zone looks. I mean, you can try all you want, but you, you don't have the length, you don't have the size, you don't have the quickness to be able to simulate that in practice. So when you get to, this, to, the, um, to the tournament and you got to play against that, it's a very different look than what most teams are looking used to seeing. When you were at Syracuse, Syracuse still in the Big East, and the Big East – had some real beast. Yes. You went up against the guys like we, we mentioned Hashim Thabit a minute ago, uh, Luke Herringody at Notre Dame, Greg Monroe at Georgetown, uh, Gary McGee at Pitt. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it like going up against some of these really big centers? 
man, the Big East was what 16 teams and the number one seed can get beat by the 16 team at any given night. Like it was so much um, parity in the league. I think we went down to DePaul one year and we were supposed to beat them by a lot and they ended up beating us that game down there in DePaul. But it was just, you just knew that every game was going to be a battle. You know, every team had two, three, four guys that was going to make the NBA. Like I tell everybody, I remember when we played Marquette, we didn't know much about Jimmy Butler. And then look at Jimmy Butler now, you know, multi, multi, multi-year all-star. So, mm-hmm. and that, and that's what it was in the Big East. Like every night it was two, three guys that were highly recruited that were going to get drafted within the next year or two that you knew you had to play against. So you had to always be ready. And I think that at that time we were doing some Saturday, Monday games. So it was like you couldn't even really celebrate your Saturday win because, you know, you had a quick turnaround and gets another powerhouse team. All right. So but who was the toughest guy that you had to go up? Was it was it Dewan Blair? Was it Thabit? Was it the toughest guy to score on? Yeah, let's start with that. Definitely Hashim Thabit. Okay. definitely not even close. I mean, like you you almost catch yourself staring at the other end when he's down there like doing dunks and stuff in the warm because he's not he's not even jumping and he's dunking it, it's like you don't get that every day like what's so funny is Hashim actually lives or he's in DC in the Maryland DC area a lot so we have we played we have played the last like two three summers and we and we talk and we tell each other stories of how it was at UConn how it was at Syracuse but like being 19, 20 years old, seeing a guy seven three and athletic, it was like, oh yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a war tonight. I right, which was the guy that you knew you were gonna go up against that it was gonna be the most physical battle that you were gonna come out bruised and tired and beat up. I'd probably say Dewan Blair. Uh, Dewan Blair, he you couldn't move him. He was super strong, even though he was like six seven, but you didn't, you couldn't move Dewan Blair, and he, and he, he played like he was six, six, nine, seven feet, just his game. But man, he was strong. What about going up against a guy like Rick Jackson in practice? Well, you know, in practice, he was on my team, so I didn't. Really- <laughs> Coach never split you two up and let you go against <laughs> no, each other. We, we, I didn't have to fight Rick too much, and that's a good thing because <laughs> he was on the first team with me, so. <laughs> <laughs> so those pity the poor second team guys. If if yeah, you and yeah. Rick, that's just not fair. <laughs> yeah, because I, I know it, Rick, man. He he didn't give an inch. No, no, Rick was tough. I mean that Philly that Philly mentality. That tough guys, man. Really tough guys. <laughs> um, so your senior year, actually your fifth year, uh-huh. two thousand ten. You guys entered the year unranked in the mm-hmm. AP poll. And I think you're picked to finish sixth in the Big East preseason poll. Mm-hmm. But there had been a guy sitting out the year before named Wes Johnson. Mm-hmm. Did you guys know what you had in him after seeing him in practice for a season? What was Wes like? Everybody knew what we had in Wes. I just think if the, if the people that made the rankings and the scouts were in our practices, we would probably have been number one from the beginning. I mean, Wes really, really like – he controlled the practice with that second team. Like they, they beat us a lot of times, the first team in, in practice simply off playing through him. 
Um, we didn't know, I didn't know anything about Wesley Johnson before he got to Syracuse. I never watched Iowa State play, but it only took about two, three practices to understand that he was the real deal. What's that like being on the first team and getting beat by the second team guys? Oh, it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy. They're talking to us because you know, we're, we're used to being the second team like all the time. So they're usually quiet in practice. They're not saying anything, but now they're coming into practice. They're talking, they're talking a little more. They're smiling a little more. And Wes is just in the corner waiting like, I got us. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Well, it wasn't, that really was a magical year. You guys go from unranked early in the year, you go down to the garden and you beat California, North Carolina. That basically announced to the country that you guys were coming. Um, but it probably, I mean, did it feel as magical for you guys as, as it did for those of us who were covering you all that year? Yeah, no question. I mean, we had a team where we had five guys starting that were, I would say, maybe the best five starting in the, in the whole Big East. And this is when the Big East is the Big East. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is we had a bench that when they came in the game, it was no drop off. It, they, they played like starters. So it was like, what do you do? Even when I go to my second group, they still playing as if my first group is playing. So it was just tough for any other team. Yeah, I mean, coming off the bench, you had Scoop Jardine, Chris Joseph. I think they both earned different organizations, six man of the year award. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. The magic kind of faded or fizzled at the Big East tournament. You guys were playing Georgetown, and you went down with mm-hmm. an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know at the time that it was bad, that it was going to keep you out, that you were done? I didn't know how bad it was, but I had been playing the whole year hurt. I mean, I had to take medicine to play pretty much every game. Um, and I knew that it was my senior year. Um, I was looking at the draft board around the second round. I mean, the team was doing great, so I didn't want to stop anything. I was like, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on my own shield pretty much. Well, um, what was wrong with you all year long that you were taking the medicine for? I was I was having, like, chronic knee pain pretty much. Really? And, and the knee that, that I ended up injuring. So when it happened, I mean, I was surprised, but not overly surprised because, like I said, I had been playing with knee pain in that right knee the entire year. If it was your right knee that year, that's not the knee you injured back when you were a sophomore. Mm-mm. Uh, that, that was your left, right? Yeah, my, my, my left was the partial tear, and then my right knee was the full tear, full quad rupture. Oof. At what point did you know, you know, after the injury, you know, was it a day or two that you know that you weren't going to be able to play in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, well, we had the MRI done, and it showed that I fully ruptured uh, my quad tendon. But uh, they didn't want to tell the team because they didn't want the morale of the team to go down. So they, they kept the mindset, like, if we win one more, AO will come back. If we win one more, AO will come back. And at that time, I don't know who made it, but my quad – had a Twitter page. So I don't, I still to this day don't know who made that, but it would be like Arendze's quad. Oh yeah, feeling better this morning. Oh yeah, just got some ice. I don't know who made the page, but somebody made a Arendze on the quad page. So like it was given updates that I don't know who was making them, but it was just, it was just funny to see it. But yeah, so 
you know, I was doing all the necessary things, you know, leading up. But, I mean, we knew that I wouldn't be able to get back. But like I said, we just wanted to keep the morale of the team up and tell them, you know, keep winning one more, Renze will come back. Keep winning one more, Renze will come back. Did any of the guys figure out that you weren't coming back at any point? Um, I'm not not sure. I mean, I think that because, you know, in in basketball, like it's hard to take a week off and just go back and play. Right. You got to you got to be doing something for your conditioning, something for your body, your body to be moving and things like that. So I think when guys were saying that I wasn't very much active. They were starting to get it like, okay, he might not be coming back anytime soon. Yeah, because you don't have a lot of time. It's the NCAA tournament. They're playing. Uh, The games get going. The team actually did win twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, They won the first and second round games and advanced to the Sweet 16. And then you ran into a Butler team. Mm -hmm. That's going to become Cinderella, right? Right. You never know where Cinderella is going to come from when the tournament starts. But you run into Cinderella. what do you remember about, about that game uh, against those guys out in Salt Lake City? You know what's so funny? When I'm watching these games, I'm almost in like a – like a, I'm in my own world, you know, because I'm just – I'm picturing myself being out there, but obviously I'm on the bench and I can't be out there. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when I'm watching the game, I'm trying to almost replay it to add myself into the game, right? Mm-hmm. But knowing that I have no control of what's going on out there. So I just feel like, I mean, obviously we had Deshante Riley, a guy that never played any minutes. You throw him into the fire against a team who has been going, but you can see like it's a big pick, a big piece of the team is missing anybody that, even if they didn't see Syracuse play before, they'd be like, it doesn't look as fluid as it did, obviously, when I was playing. And, you know, I was the guy that they gave the ball to. I scored for us. I rebound. I did so much for the team that it was like, we don't have our big guy. It doesn't feel the same. You know, not the same calls on defense. Like, because, you know, like I said, in the back of the zone, you're used to hearing the same voice. You know, it's my voice in the back. You know, Wes, watch your left. You know, scoop screen coming. Like, they're used to that voice. And with the voice not being there, it's just a totally different feel for the team. Yeah, I often tell people that the center in the zone is like a goalie in hockey or the goalkeeper in soccer, only in a more compressed area. So the communication is heard even more, and it's and it's more often than than like than on a soccer field or on a hockey rink. But that's basically you're the guy looking out, um, and and that's where the communication starts in the, in the zone is right there in the middle. Yeah. Um, that locker room after that Butler game. Um, I guess, you know, I've been covering the team over 30 years. There's only been one team who at the last game, it was a happy locker room. There's only one, you know, that's the team that won it all. Every other time, whenever you're covering a team, you know, the last time you go into that locker room in the season, it's going to be a sad locker room. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen a more downcast, somber locker room than that one after the Butler game. Um, I don't want to dredge up too many bad memories here, AO, but, uh, do you remember what that was like and, uh, and what was said among the guys or with coach Beheim? Well, I think it's still a picture online of me. I was leaning back in the locker and they put the towel over my locker to cover my face. Cause I was crying so much. Like it was just a, 
I mean, so many emotions from the fact that we lost to the fact that my career is over here, from the fact that I still have to go through this rehab process. It was just everything was was going through my head at once. And I just I just couldn't hold it in. I think all the coaches were coming up to me, like tapping me, like just, you know, relax. But I just yeah. I couldn't I couldn't stop it, you know. And then you got to understand, like we knew that we had a special team. Like I feel like we probably, I mean, outside of the national championship team, like we might have been the second best team to ever be assembled um, under Bayon. So like we knew, and we knew that. Like as the season got in, we knew how good we were. Like you know, how many teams of Syracuse has been a number one seed, not only in the tournament but number one seed in the country. Like during the year, you know, we were, we knew where we were, you know, and it. I think all the emotions flowing at that time. I mean, the locker room was just, it was just a devastating locker room. You know, what I think uh, was part of it too is there was a lot of guys on that team who had put in time and work. Andy Routens was the fifth year senior who had missed a year because of an injury. Mm-hmm. Saint, you were a fifth year senior who had missed a year because of injury. Scoop Jardine had missed a year because of injury and come back from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when you go through all that, that when it when it ends the way it did, it hit it hits a little harder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, like the makeup of the team, just a resilient group. You know, from injuries, like you said, the guys that are fifth year seniors, um, West transferring, having to sit out a year, and then he has his coming out party. It's so much that goes into that group. That's what made us as special that we were as we were as a group because everybody had a story, a different type of story that kind of they had to overcome something to be playing at the level we were playing at as a team. Yeah, like it, it was a, it was a terrific group. Um, one of my all-time favorite teams to cover from beginning of the season all the way to the end. Well, maybe not all the way to the end. Uh, <laughs> it would have been nice. A win over Butler would have been nice for you guys, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, to, to let, let's lift, let's lift the, the spirits here in the room a little bit. Let's talk about something interesting and fun. Um, you, we we're talking about you getting into some broadcasting stuff earlier, but I know another thing that you've been working on is uh, you have your own clothing line. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you still working on that? And, and what can you tell us about it? It's still going. Um, so <laughs> it started when I came there for the TBT a few years back when we were going to play, when I announced my name to be a part of the team. Um, a lot of the fans were reaching out to me, you know, cause I didn't even realize I hadn't been back in over 10 years to, uh, to, Syracuse so they're reaching out can't wait to see you hope you're doing well all the above so I thought of I just brainstorming like what can I do for the, the fans and then I came up with obviously I put my logo on on some t-shirts and then when we did our autograph signing at the baseball stadium I sold out all of them and that was that you know TBT I was done with it but then when I got back home I kept getting messages. Um, you know, what else do you have? Do you have anything else? Do you have any hoodies? And not just from Syracuse fans, but from people in general. So, you know, I'm telling people, no, no, no. And then it got to the point where it was like, okay, this is a lot of traffic asking me, um, <laughs> what else do I have? And that's kind of um, how it started. Yes, it's still going. Um, I have a website. It's called aostudio21.com. That's the website. And then I have a, so in there, I have a Syracuse fan section just for Syracuse stuff and I have awfully section for the everyday person. So I have a lot of different hoodies, sweatshirts, um, t-shirts, sweatpants, um, athletic apparel, all the above. Fantastic. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, think what you could have done if the, the name image and likeness 
had uh, you know come about in your era at Syracuse. Mm -hmm. I just feel like for the younger generation, it's getting, just getting better and better. Like, you know, these guys are able to use their name. I mean, I remember like it was yesterday, you're walking in, in the mall and you see your jersey, 21. I mean, it didn't have your last name on, on it, but everybody knew it was your jersey and they're selling it. You're not getting anything for it. I mean, now that they're changing that, that's, that's great for the athletes. Yeah. And the next year when you're gone and graduated, that number isn't, is, isn't there anymore. It's, it's uh, Chris Joseph's number or Scoop Jardine's number, but again, with no last name on it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all know that 21 was being, was there for a reason. Right. It's because Lorenzo Onawaka was a senior on a number one team in the country in, in town at the time. Yeah. Um, how's your brother doing? Your younger brother, uh, Chinanu, who didn't go to Syracuse, who went to Louisville of all places uh, <laughs> and had a great career. How's he doing? He's doing well. He's playing in Israel right now, the top division in Israel. He's playing really well right now. Actually, it's probably the best um, he's played as a pro so far. He's playing really well. He's shooting three now and playing really, really well. I mean, he just had a game yesterday. I mean, I'm keeping a close eye on him, but he's doing well. And I can't let you get out of here before we go back to the midnight madness at Manly Fieldhouse. <laughs> I've been saving this one. What was it like to break the backboard at Midnight Madness at Manly? To be honest, I don't even know how to describe it because it's not something that you ever think about, right? When you're playing, you're just playing. Nobody's thinking like, oh, I might break the backboard. But it was just a regular, a regular play. You see Paul came down, he threw a lot to me, I dunked it. And I, I just remember when I dunked it, I just like, I felt like all this, all this glass falling on me. So I kind of like ducked and got out the way. And then, like, you know, we ran around the gym a few times. Everybody was um, cheering and yelling and jumping around. And then the funniest part about it is, you know, they started playing half court because the, the rim was broken, obviously, on the other side. And coaches yelling at me, hey, yo, hey, yo, go on the court. What are you doing? I'm like, coach. I got to go see Brad. My whole neck is full of glass. <laughs> like I couldn't go play. So I had to go to the back with Brad in the training room. It was just all this broken glass, just all of my neck cut me all over. So that's what I remember from that. But Oh, man, wow. A little more scarier than I remembered it. Yeah. But man, I remember, I think the next day I was either number one or number two on sports center. Everybody was calling me. It was just a big story. But, man, I, so much fun at Syracuse, man. So many good times. I mean, great teammates, obviously, Hall of Fame coach. But, man, the, the five years, I mean, other than the injury, it couldn't have gotten any better. Well, you, you were a pleasure to watch, I'm sure, from the fans' point of view, from my point of view, too. You were also a pleasure to cover. Uh, you were always uh, just uh, the most polite young man I'd ever met. And uh, it's, it's great to continue to stay in touch with you and uh, see where your, your post-basketball career is taking you. So uh, it's been great to talk to you, Renze, and thank you for joining us here on the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me. Great to see you, Mike. I want to thank Renze for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and follow all of our complete coverage of Syracuse basketball on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.